0: Let's pray this morning first before this message. I want to pray about something, a few specifics before we launch into the message. Lord, first of all, this morning, we want to lift up another church in our community. I want to pray for Rock, or The Rock Baptist Church, and Tim Stout. I uh, really know nothing at all about this church other than I had a flyer on my front porch this week from this church I've never even heard of um, Lord, this morning, I just want to have the chance to lift him up and um, pray that you are uh, strong in and through this ministry. Pray for uh, Tim. I don't know if he's married and has a family, but Lord, if he does, I pray that they are getting his first and his best. And I pray that he is um, enjoying you. I pray that he's fueled by worship. Just knowing all the distractions and things that that he must face as a pastor, I'm uh, just wanting to lift him up and pray for focus. Um, focused, intentional um, awe and wonder and marvel that will fuel a ministry. And Lord, if this is the only exposure that, that I have to Rock, the Rock Baptist Church, just a, a flyer on the doorstep, um, we're thankful that we have the chance to bring them into the throne room this morning and to pray specifically for this people. Um, what a great opportunity. What a great privilege. We pray that you are um, being enjoyed this morning in this church. I pray that you are uh, equipping the saints through uh, Tim and through a sermon that he may be preparing to preach at this very moment uh, thankful for the chance to lift him up this morning Lord I'm thankful too to see Brandon here on the front row just considering the kind of week that he's had and his family's had in the hospital we just uh, thankful for his um, healing and his uh, recovery thankful that he's sitting here incarnate with us this morning uh, too Lord we want to pray for Andrew money who is a uh, going through a terrible, terrible uh, bout of sickness with mono and appendicitis at the same time in the hospital right now, Lord, we pray for some really basic, simple things like uh, the ability to get some food down today, uh, to get some calories in his system to fight off this infection, and uh, that the doctors would be able to treat him uh, timely, and we pray for in a timely way, and we pray, too, for the pain that he's experiencing, Lord, we pray that you would um, you take that away. Uh, Lord, also, um, we'll pray for Dan Metz as he's uh, ministering to his mom who is uh, apparently uh, close to passing away in Florida. Lord, we just pray for his heart right now that he's trusting you and that he has a peace that is uh, passing understanding as he's holding fast to you. We pray for a son that ministers to his mom well in these last hours and days. Um, And lastly, Lord, uh, just another loss, we to pray for Samantha Spear and her family having lost her dad last night. It's a family that's dear to us. Uh, we just want to lift them up and pray that they will be comforted with only a comfort that comes from the Holy Spirit, but that they'll be wrapped up by the people of God um, that are surrounding them right now. Lord, uh, lastly, I want to pray for how we spend these next few minutes. I'm, um, I'm thankful for this passage of Scripture that takes us to just a fitting response to our union with Christ. I pray that you will speak clear or clearly and um, that you will equip your people this morning for worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last week, I asked for a little poll at the beginning of the message. You can turn to the book of Colossians, by the way, as I'm speaking here for a couple a couple minutes. I asked for a little poll. I don't do that very often because I, don't, I know interactive sort of preaching is a little bit alarming, at least for me, because I come from a very traditional background where... Um, you just you're prepared to listen in a kind of a sense of reverence. and there's nothing wrong with being interactive, but um, last week I was a little bit more interactive than normal asking for a poll of people that had heard a sermon on union with Christ. and um, I, I didn't ask for a poll of people that had heard a sermon on what it meant to be, you know using that phrase in Christ, or th- I'm talking union with Christ. And I had about five people in a room of the count they told me afterwards the count was 209. Five people in a room of 209 people that had specifically heard a sermon or sermons on what it meant to be in union with Christ. So that convinces me that these last two weeks are profitable and that this week is profitable. I'm not sure if we're going to have any more sermons on union with Christ in the immediate future. Scott's going to be preaching the next two weeks. But there's a potential of us having a fourth message on union with Christ after Scott preaches for the next two, two Sundays, but I think you're going to hear it come up more often than you may, have, you may expect, because I think we're reading together. Scott and I have talked about this, and Morris, in fact, poked his head in my office this morning and said, man, reading Colossians 2 and 3 with union in Christ in, in, sort of on your mind makes for reading your scripture differently. So I think we're going to hear it more often. Um, it's... Um, it's pretty rich. We've, uh, we've taken a look at it the last couple of weeks, this union with Christ by faith. And it's turned out to be what we developed in the first Sunday two weeks ago was this realization that in some ways it may be a central theme of the New Testament. It may be the central theme of the New Testament, especially the writings of Paul. We first met the idea in the passage of Scripture that Corey read this morning in Ephesians 2 where we saw three things that happened were made alive together with Christ— we're raised with Christ, and we're seated with Christ. Paul literally had to make up three new Greek words to go with the notions of being caught up with Christ and being made alive and being uh, seated and being uh, raised. So it's, it's a pretty awesome thought. He, um, we, we bumped into it there for the first time a couple of months ago when I was preaching through Ephesians chapter 2. And we decided that we were going to commit some time to it specifically. Given, given though, I think that what we've considered these last couple of weeks, that what we're talking about is victory over death. We're talking about eternity with the Lord. We're talking about what it means to be saved. That this idea and this time that we're spending on this thing called union with Christ is pretty important. I hope you'll reckon that that's true with me. Last week, we found that our union with Christ was actually determined before our births. Well before our births. Well before we were even planned or thought of, by, at least by a human being. Long before even a starry night in Bethlehem, our union with Christ was predetermined. Ephesians 1 tells us that tells us that God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, and in Him being a phrase that connects to that union with Christ. Before He even said, let there be light, he said, let these be mine. These that didn't even exist yet. Let these be mine. We also found last week that our union with Christ had real meaning during Christ's life. I don't know that in the pulpit that I've had such a delightful or an opportunity to enjoy such a delightful truth. Um, especially so as I did this last week as we bumped into this reality that union with Christ means that his sinlessness was counted as ours. When he resisted Satan in the wilderness, when he lived a sinless life, when he walked the Via Dolorosa after going from trial to trial, when he was spit upon, when he was beaten, when he lived a life that was perfection, it was counted and reckoned as if we had lived it. And then the flip side of that, our sinfulness was counted as his. his sinlessness was counted as ours, and our sinfulness was counted as His. God did really what we considered last week. He did a divine switcheroo where He placed His left hand on the righteous son through the work of the cross, His left hand, and He placed His right hand, the right hand of blessing on a bunch of undeserving prodigals. I hope that if anybody before last week didn't really have a grasp on what it meant, what the gospel meant, what the good news was, I hope that as of last week that you realize and understand that the good news is that God thought of Christ's sinlessness being ours and our sinfulness being His. God reckoned that, and that's some glorious, glorious news. This week we're going to consider... What our union with Christ means in our lives now. What it means in our lives now. Is this thing, these truths that we considered these last couple of weeks, are they just meant to be sort of these heady realities that we think about from time to time? These things that secure our place in, in eternity with the Lord? Or are they supposed to be realities that show up in how we live and how we love and how we do life Now, I think you're going to see, I hope you're going to see in these next few minutes that it's the latter. I'm going to read a large, well, it's not a large section, most of chapter two and all of chapter three in these next couple of minutes. And then what we're going to do in the next few moments is we're going to break those things down, not in small chunks, but in larger chunks and sort of staying at bird's eye view. I don't want to get down in the dirt, which is really, really hard for me, not to get down and deal with some real in-depth things. I want to keep a bird's-eye view because I want us together to see what argument Paul is developing for the Colossian church, what it has to do with union with Christ and what it has to do with your Tuesday or their Tuesday, okay? their general life, their, where they live, where they work, how they're married, things like that. So we're going to have to work real hard to stay at a bird's-eye view. Beginning in verse 6 of chapter 2. Therefore, as you received Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I'm going to give you a little bit of context. I, I, I might be redundant because my notes might be, but that will be okay, I think. The context behind Colossians is apparently some false teaching that was going on or they were being influenced by some false teaching that's wanting to introduce some additional things to salvation. That you can be saved plus, or you are saved by faith but also doing some additional things. So he's dealing with a heresy here and this is why he's encouraging them to not let anybody take you captive with some false teaching. Verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I think I'm going to stop right there. I want to go back and grab, I don't want to read the rest of that passage just yet, because what I'm going to do in these next few minutes is I want to go back and grab a couple of passages for context, and then I want us to sort of unpack what's happening in chapter 2 leading up to verse 15. Okay, So for the sake of context, look over in chapter 1, just a couple of excerpts from chapter 1 that will give us a little bit of background. Beginning in verse 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now some background for what Paul, this argument that Paul is going to develop here. He's pointing out from the beginning of the letter, reminding them that through faith in Christ that we've been delivered and transferred from this present dark domain to the kingdom of Christ. It's an already done deal. He's not talking about some sort of future reality. He's talking about something that has already been accomplished from our union with Christ by faith. We've been transferred from this present evil age and this domain of darkness and this relationship and this union with Adam to a union with Christ, which means that we are part of his kingdom now. All the hopelessness and desperation that goes along with being in union with Adam is gone altogether. It's an already done deal. You're not somehow by your profession of faith that happened at some point in the past holding some sort of voucher for some something special at some future time when you go on to be with the Lord. You, there's no voucher, okay? You hold the goods and the blessings and you're walking in them right now whether you realize it or not. That's what he's pointing out to them from the very beginning. You've already been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son, You're already in it. Now look at verses 21 through 23. And you people who are blessed, not holding a voucher for some wonderful thing in the future, but actually being transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son already, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith. Now, if you're a word circler in your Bible or a word underliner, underline that word continue. It's going to be one of our first important words this morning. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. These last couple of weeks, I've called it the football. Paul's football that he received, that he passed to the churches that he planted. Here's the football, the essence of what I taught you. This is the gospel that he calls it. And he says that, it, that God is going to present them holy and blameless above reproach if indeed they continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister What he's saying in this passage is that union with Adam meant alienation from your creator. But his death, Christ's death, made us now presentable to our creator. Made us stand before him holy and blameless and above reproach. Provided we continue holding on to the football. Providing we continue holding on to the good news now. We're going to move to the football here in a moment. Let's move over to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. I'm going to read them again. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Walk is the next word I want you to pay attention to. First was continue. This is walk. Walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now... This passage, chapter 1, verse 23 says, provided you continue in the faith. This continuing in the faith means, if you connect it here to chapter 2, verse 6, it means walking in Christ. We're talking about union language. We're talking about union with Christ language. Walking in Christ. I told you it's going to change how you read your New Testaments if you're looking for union with Christ. Continue in faith means walking in. In Christ. Now, I enjoy this word walking. This walking word walk in Paul is Paul's way of saying do life. And he's not talking about some sort of spectacular life full of spectacular moments or just reach out for Christ in those moments where you find out you've got cancer and you're about to die. Don't reach out for Christ just on those big life-changing moments where like, you're about to get married and you want to make sure God's in on it or where you're about to pick a new job. He's talking about doing life like on Tuesday. That's why I said Tuesday at the beginning of the morning. Anything special coming up on this Tuesday? Maybe somebody has something special. Maybe most of us were talking about just a routine, mundane Tuesday, and that's what Paul is talking about here in walking in Christ. Continuing in faith means walking in union with who we're in union with. Walk in Christ means, in Paul, do life in Christ. Routine, everyday Run-of-the-mill life Tuesday, or January, or, yes, this is going to be a surprise to you, Greenville, Quinlan, even, for y'all that live in Quinlan. Yes, we're talking about even Quinlan. We're talking about Rockwall. We're talking about Campbell. We're talking about Lone Oak. Continuing in faith and walking in Christ refers to doing it in places like L3, PJC, Greenville High School, GCS, Lamar, even the hospital, some of you that work at the hospital, walking in Christ means walking in Him in those ordinary places. Delivered and transferred folk that are in union with Christ walk in Christ in ordinary days and ordinary places. That's what continuing in faith means. Now, I'm going to read verses 8 through 15 again. We're going to grab the football as we continue. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him, watch for our language here, union with Christ's language, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. "...by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses." by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul's encouraging the Colossian church, don't be deceived by empty philosophy and deceit. Instead, hold fast to the football that I gave you, the football of union with Christ. In him you were circumcised. Now that's a word that we hadn't really considered yet in union. And it goes with the next one. In him you were buried with him in baptism. In him you were raised and God made you alive together with Christ, having nailed our record of debt to the cross. Hold on to what I gave you. What I passed to you is the same thing that he passed to the Corinthian church that we considered on our first Sunday in this series. It's the same thing that he passed to the Roman church that Paul's gonna, or that, that, Paul, that Paul wrote and preached and Scott's going to preach as well here in the coming weeks. If you're looking for this football, this central teaching in Paul, you're going to find this teaching of union with Christ being the goods that Paul delivered to all these church plants. And these folks were in danger of being deceived by folks. Here's the problem. Here's the the deceit that they were offering. They were being deceived potentially by folks who wanted to devalue what Christ accomplished by adding some requirements for salvation. We're going to see what they wanted to add here in this next passage. Look here at... Chapter 2, verse 16, through the rest of the chapter. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a, with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Let me kind of put this little passage in context for you. What we've done so far, we sort of re- We've regathered up, we've picked up the football, we've grabbed this, this essence of Paul's teaching of union with Christ. And what we're going to consider in these next few minutes is how do we respond to that appropriately and fittingly. But first we're going to consider how to not respond fittingly. What's not fitting, what's not a, an appropriate response to being in union with Christ Here's the inappropriate response, the unfitting response to being in union with Christ. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Sound effects, man, I'm putting them in there. You're right. They're not wholly inspired sound effects, but man, they're fitting for what he's saying here. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the unfitting response. This is the Poor response to union with Christ. He really draws out three things. First of all, the old covenant practices. Maybe some of the teaching that they were being influenced with was, hey, you got to be sure you wash this and you got to don't touch this and you got to practice this special festival or holiday if you're going to be saved. And that's what Paul's saying. Those are old news. Those were just shadows that pointed to the substance that is Christ. When I was growing up, my parents didn't really have a hard press on this, but there was the notion when I was growing up among people that I gathered with in corporate worship and that I did church with, that if you cut your grass on Sunday, that you weren't honoring the Sabbath. That's the sort of rules and regulations he's talking about. That's just dumb. If your grass is long, please, by all means, cut it this afternoon. Now, we're in winter, so you you probably don't have to do that. But what he's talking about here is holding on to shadows of Christ over holding on to Christ himself. That is not a fitting response to being in union with him. The old covenant rituals became obsolete. So foisting them and pushing them into a new covenant list of do's and don'ts is what he calls a disqualifier. That's a big old fat word. Now, does somebody want to get into what that word means? That is somehow disqualifying their faith and salvation. I don't know. You can take a good look at it. It's bad news. Let's just leave it at that. These little list of regulations. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't handle this. Don't taste that. Don't touch this. He also introduces another thing. It's called asceticism. The first thing he introduced as an unfitting response is old covenant practices. And the second thing was asceticism. Asceticism is the practice of self-denial for the purpose of experiencing a heightened spiritual state. I'm just going to be really honest and open with you right now. I usually am, but I'm just going to tell you right now. I, this, this really appeals to me. I'm an abstinence kind of guy. I went a whole year. I, I grew up an overweight kid, so I always struggled with food. And I medicated with food my entire life. I probably still do to some degree. But I spent, for me, one of the things I wanted to do one year to sort of get a handle on this is I went off sweets for an entire year. I didn't have a Tic Tac for a year. Now, at 3 a.m. on January 1st the next year, my face was in the refrigerator eating cheesecake. So I don't know what it really accomplished. But it appeals to me. Asceticism appeals to me. It's extreme abstinence and austerity. It's sort of like a, a monastic sort of mindset that says, man, I'm just going to take all this stuff away from me because it, it, it entertains, I'm entertaining my appetites. Their practices intended to release the soul from bondage to the body, thereby permitting union with the divine. Now, the hard thing here, and I'm 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 telling you, we're gonna stay bird's eye. We're staying at the top of the trees. I'm not gonna get into the dirt and and, and the, the weeds on the difference between asceticism and what Paul said when he said, I buffet my body to make sure I'm not disqualified. Okay, or what or uh, One of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. What I'm dealing with here in this asceticism being listed here as an inappropriate response is not somehow licensed to throw self-control out the window. It's not somehow licensed to say, well, I'm going to do whatever I want with my body then because see what Pastor Ben said? That's asceticism if you somehow say you're going to um, deny yourself something. I think what's going on here at the heart of this is denying as practice good things from God and then imposing those expectations on everyone else. That's the problem that's going on right here. Now, if I had gone a whole year without eating sweets and looked down my nose at everyone else and said, man, if you were a true Christian like me, you wouldn't be eating sweets either. That's what we're talking about, I think. That's ridiculous. And the third thing that I don't think that we have a significant problem with in our context, although we might, is the worship of angels. I hope none of you are really tempted with that. But apparently that was a significant influence then, especially among Jewish circles. The worship of angels. Those are unfitting, inappropriate responses to union with Christ. And in verse 19, look at what happens in verse 19. If you're holding on to these inappropriate responses to union with Christ, then you're not holding fast to the head. You're either holding fast to Christ, the the head being Christ, Or you're holding fast to these stupid little man-made requirements and lists of do's and don'ts and regulations. And what it makes me think about is faith apparently just one-handed. Faith is one-armed and one-handed. And you can't hold on to those things and hold on to Christ because you just have one hand. So you're either holding on to Christ or you're holding on to a bunch of do's and don'ts and stupid regulations that are really just self-man-made religion. Self-religion. These things might seem wise. Look at him. He went a whole year without sweets. He must really love Jesus. They may seem wise, but really they only promote self-made religion. Now, I will confess, my whole notion about going off sweets had nothing to do with faith decisions. It was just, I'm trying to give myself a break here, so I'm not, not saying that I somehow thought that was a faith thing. But if you connect some sort of fasting to some sort of notion that you are promoting yourself in some way, then what we're talking about is promoting self-made religion. Rather than controlling or stopping the indulgences of the flesh, what this does is it actually scratches the most human of itches to measure ourselves and others in our performance by a list of measurable man-made do's and don'ts. Ironically, this thing that's supposed to be asceticism that's supposed to be disassociating yourself from the flesh scratches the most fleshly itch of measuring yourself with some do's and don'ts. In essence, adding man-made requirements and hoops and asceticism or practicing these shadow practices to the substance that is Christ is to say this, and this is why it's a disqualifier. It's to say that his work wasn't quite enough. So I've got to add some stuff to it. I've got to add some asceticism. I've got to add these acts or this washing somehow to make up the difference. Now look at verses three or chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Those were the unfitting, inappropriate responses to union with Christ. Now we're going to look at some fitting and appropriate responses to union with Christ. And here's where he imports the notion back into the conversation here in chapter 3, verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ. He's talking union with Christ language. If you are in union with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Instead of disqualifying yourselves by holding fast to stupid man-made do's and don'ts, instead, respond to union with Christ appropriately by seeking, first, seeking the things that are above and setting your minds on things above not earthly things. Both of these things have to do with the mind, how you think, how you see the world, what you prioritize. They all have to do with where you're thinking, seeking and setting on him since, after all, we are in union with him. Here's the next verb. We just grabbed a couple of them. Seeking and setting are appropriate and fitting responses. Let's continue in verse 5 to look for some more. Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked, but you were living in them, or when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is in all. Christ is all and in all. Here's the next verbs that we gather up from this passage: is to put off, to put to death, and to put away. Put these things away, what are already in you, these earthly things that we don't have to work at, these things that come really natural in our lives, like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness. Does anybody really have to work at those things? It's because they're already in you. And he says a fitting response to union with Christ is putting those things away, putting those things off. Put away anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. Put away lying. The language, too, he even says, put away the old man. That's not who you are anymore. That's Adam. You were in union with him. Put that away because now you're in union with someone altogether different. That word that's used there for putting away is the same word that's used in chapter 2 when he's talking about us being circumcised by Christ as putting off of the flesh, put those things away from you. It's also, it's interestingly enough, it's an aorist tense. It means it should be some finality to it. It's an ongoing thing that takes place in the life of every believer I have ever known. But it's not a present tense verb because there ought to be some finality to it. Because it's not who you are. If you're in union with Christ, you with Every bit of finality you can muster, walking in the Holy Spirit, bathing in what's true and bathing in what he's accomplished. Put these things off. Put these things to death and put these things away. Those aren't stupid man-made do's and don'ts. Those are fitting God-made do's and don'ts. Don't continue in these things because it's not who you are. The next thing. If we're going to put some things off, let's see if we're supposed to put some things on. Continue in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The Father, through Him. An appropriate and fitting response to our union with Christ in light of what's happened to us by faith, we are putting some things off. We're seeking some things. We are setting our minds on some things. We are putting some things off, but we are also putting some things on. We are putting on this new identity of who we are, and what goes along with that is compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, Meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, and letting the peace of Christ rule and the word of Christ dwell. You want to know what fitting responses to union with Christ are? That's a really nice list right there. And that too is an aorist tense, as if there should be some finality to it, because it's who you are. It's something we have to work at every single day, but realize it's something that it is your identity as being in union with Christ that you have put these things on. And then lastly, let's look at verse 18 of chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 1. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done. And there's no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. These are real common things that are listed here. Just reinforce what he's calling them to is walking in Christ in ordinary Places like marriage, like family, like job, like Greenville, like the very things that we come and go and just exist in and we wait for something spectacular, not realizing we're in it. We're in the place where He's called us to walk in response fittingly, in response to being in union with Him by wives submitting to imperfect men In response to your union with Christ, wives, submit to imperfect men. And husbands, love with gentleness, not with harshness. Imperfect wives. Man, in response to our union with Christ, children obey imperfect parents. In response to our union with Christ, let's get into the workplace. Bond servants... Obey imperfect masters and work like you're working for Jesus. On Tuesday, we're not talking about spectacular moments. We're talking tomorrow. What a great place for us to walk in union with Christ. It's right here before us. Masters, on the other hand, for some of you that are running businesses, be fair and just with imperfect bond servants. Man, man. I have three little implications. They're all brief, but I think they're important in response to this flow of argument that Paul develops here. First of all, there's the implication that you can't put something off and away successfully without putting something else on. You can't put a bunch of things away that were in the old man and the old life without putting on something else. God never, at least to my knowledge, calls you to put something away without giving you a great and God-honoring alternative that's full of blessing. I think the worst thing you can possibly do is sweep a house clean and leave it unfilled. Jesus has a wonderful parable along those lines in Matthew 12. I've seen this firsthand in so many lives. I've seen it in my own life. You can almost watch These things unfold in the lives of those that you love and care about. What goes with a strong appetite for God and His word and His work is a weak appetite for worldly stuff. I think faith is one-handed. It just has one hand. What goes with a strong appetite for God and His word and His work is a weak appetite for worldly stuff and activities. And on the flip side, when an appetite for God and his word and his work wanes, there's a vacuum there and a void that will be filled with the world's offerings. It's inevitable because faith is one-handed. You can only hold on to one thing. We're made with appetites and only asceticism, I think, says ignore them. That's the problem with asceticism. It says ignore them. We were made with God-given appetites, And those God-given appetites should be met with God-honoring, God-seeking, above-seeking replacements. My thought is you can stay quite occupied and quite satisfied being compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, working at forgiveness with people that have asked for it 70 times 69 Working at that, you can be completely occupied loving one another and letting the peace of Christ rule in your life and the word of Christ dwell. The second implication is that despite something so profound that it happened and was secured and decided even before our birth, this notion of being in union with Christ, we should still mindfully and intentionally, with effort, work at walking in Christ. And all those verbs that we've gathered up this morning, continue, walk, seek, and set, put to death, put away, put off, and put on, all of those things involve work. It seems like it ought to be a no-brainer, but it's not. I don't know if we've been conditioned by the movies or conditioned by stories that we've heard growing up or conditioned by the notion of falling in love and falling out of love, these weird ideas that really have nothing to do with the concept of biblical love. Some people think that if it involves work, then it must not be true. Think about how the relationships are treated sometimes, that if it's a relationship, if it's true love, you won't have to work at it. Anybody married in this room? Going to testify if that's true or not? It can be really true, but it's going to be lots and lots and lots of work. There's this strange notion that you'll be carried along effortlessly, caught up in something that's really right, and you don't have to work at. And that doesn't happen in marriage, and I don't think it happens anywhere else. I think somebody's been watching too many movies. That's not real life. And the problem is, I think in church settings also as well, is that we tend to just divorce one another. Whenever things get really hard, and I'm not talking divorce, like divorce proceedings kind of stuff. I'm talking figuratively, metaphorically. When, when we find some occasion where somebody's wronged us seven times 69, instead of dealing with that a yet again, instead of walking in response to our union with Christ, we can just go right down the street. Now, some of y'all are here for really good reasons because you weren't here in the teaching and preaching of God's Word, you were underfed, undernourished, you came from different contexts, some of you came to faith in this church, you are here for different reasons. I want to say this, if you're here for this reason, because you needed to work through some stuff where you're with folks in your last church and you just divorced the relationship instead of walked in it, then you didn't walk accordingly and fittingly responding to your union with Christ by faith and you need to go back and clean it up. You need to go back and walk in forgiveness. You need to go back and work through forgiveness. It's appropriate and fitting work in response to the cross. Lastly, the last observation or implication of what we considered this morning. Realize the work of walking in Christ. The work of seeking Him and setting our mind on Him, the work of putting things off and putting things on as a fitting response to union with Christ can only be done with one another. They can only be done with each other. These things aren't meant to be done alone. You may have heard this sermon alone. You may have read, as we've read Colossians together, you may have read it and heard it and thought and processed it alone. That's no surprise. We're going to start there, but we can't leave it there. We've got to expand this out and realize this letter wasn't written to Bill and Jim and Sally. It was written to a church family. A church family of regular old folks, people with bad breath, people that showed up late to worship, people that may not show up, people that might commit to something and then not show up, people that do, that are uber faithful, just a compliment. It was written to regular old folks, regular old church folk, but it was written to a church family. You may not realize, but all that goes into this passage is written to a people, the putting off, the seeking, the setting All of those verbs, they're all plural. They're all meant to be done together. Some of these passages could be translated, you people. You people continue. You people walk in Christ. You people seek. You people set. You people put to death. You people put away. You people put on. All those things are meant to be done together What we should realize in union with Christ is that we are part of an organic reality. And he says it here so beautifully in chapter 3, verses 9 and 11, the last place we're going to look this morning. We're going to go back and take a closer look at it. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 11, 9 through 11. Don't lie to one another, regular old people on Tuesday in regular old Colossa, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. What he's communicating there is that you've put off this old humanity, that word there, this self, what you've put off in verse 9, you've put off the old self. That word there, self, is a is, is word that means man, man. It's plural, you people have put off the old man, the old humanity that was in union with Adam. And you people together have put on the new man in the next verse. We together have become this organic reality, this being, this body, this house. There's so many images in our, in our Bible that, that, that are behind this concept of us being bought, b- bought and built into something together where there's no distinction, no class, not even race. How glorious to be part of the church family where all these things are gone. You're together, united to Christ, and he is all and in all. Man, what beautiful, beautiful truth. You step by faith as an individual into a living, organic body of people. And you do these things together. I was thinking about how to sort of understand all these things where we're reckoned as part of this before we ever even take breath and how we come into it and how we actuate it, what happens by faith. It's actuated and we step into something. I was thinking about it's like stepping into this pitch black dark room and you have just enough light to see. I say it's pitch. It's just enough light in there to see that there is a bulb. There's a bulb in there and you're wondering, is that thing burn out? The the switch was flipped in ages past before God said, let there be light, and it was flipped on. You don't know that, though. You simply, by faith, go up and turn it just a squeak, and the thing comes on, and you think you're alone, and as light fills that room, you look around you and realize it's the room is full of a cloud of witnesses. The room is full of a church family, a body, a house, a being that you are now part of. As light fills that room, you realize... It's full of people, and those people are called the church. Man, all these things are meant to be done together. If you miss that we are united to Christ by faith, that we are united to Christ by faith, then you miss altogether what it means to be part of a local church. You may or may not be. You may come and go, undetached, unconnected. Not knowing, not being known, you may just come and go and miss out what it means, miss out on what it means to be part of a local body. If you don't understand that we are united together to Christ by faith, then you're going to miss out on the wonderful part that we have in each other's lives, worshiping, walking, continuing, setting, seeking, putting on and putting things off together. Those things are best done together. Let me pray and we're going to have our supper. God, we're thankful for these truths from this passage. I'm thankful for this flow of the argument. I'm thankful for real practical things that we can walk in. Lord, I pray too that as we endeavor to be this people, as we endeavor to be kind, compassionate, humble, meek, patient, forgiving, loving, walking in the peace of Christ, as we endeavor to be a people with wives that are submitting to imperfect men and husbands that are loving imperfect wives and children obeying imperfect parents and bondservants obeying imperfect masters and masters being fair and just with imperfect bondservants, Lord, I pray that as we are endeavoring to seek things above and set our minds on things above, that all of these things will be fueled by this ultimate unbelievable reality that by faith you've united us to perfection that by faith you have placed your right hand on us and blessed the undeserving with the blessings that Christ bought and won. God, I pray that all of those efforts will be simply response. Guard us from thinking for a moment that anything that we do or don't may add to Christ's work. Lord, I'm thankful that it's finished. And I'm thankful for this development this morning, these lists of things, these beautiful and fitting and appropriate responses to what's been done for us in Christ. We love you, Lord, and we trust you, and we're thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.